to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hey everyone, I hope everyone is doing doubly and triply well today. The world has gone crazy and I'm wishing that everyone is making it through this difficult time. China seems to be doing okay and my school was thinking of starting back up by the end of the month, but then I got an update for overseas staff to remain on standby. It seems many Asian countries are now preventing the Western world from entering in a strange reversal of border control as the virus has spread out west. So I'll most likely spend the rest of the spring and early summer remaining in the U.S. before flying back out to China. I'll most likely be quarantined upon my arrival, which I'm not looking forward to, but also is probably the right thing for the government to do. This is a really striking difference, the approach I'm seeing in the U.S., which seems to be leaderless and unable to make a decision about how to do anything in this time of crisis. So anyway, in light of all the terrible things and disruptions happening in the world, I'm trying to maintain some semblance of normalcy and I'll try to keep releasing episodes on a bi-weekly basis. For today, I tried to pick out a fun episode I did with artist and curator Jova Lin. I met Jova at Vermont Studio Center in January which seems so long ago and long before most of us had even heard about the coronavirus. Jova graduated from Hampshire College before heading to Detroit to pursue a Master's of Fine Arts in Photography at Cranbrook Academy of Art. Afterwards, Jova became a Ford Curatorial Fellow at the Museum of Contemporary Art Detroit before continuing to work there as a curator ever since. Jova has the most wonderful energies to be around, and we laugh our way through the interview. We talk about white fragility, learning where to feel powerful, and our thoughts on happiness and success in the art world. We also spend a bit of time discussing Jova's intersection of work as both an artist and curator. I hope everyone stays safe, and I hope you enjoy this. Do I? <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> this is all very funny to me. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Have you never done podcasts? No, this is my first podcast. Really? Yeah, I've done like video interviews and radio, but it's weird. It's I don't know why it feels different. Like mm. But it's good, good company. So yeah, it's gonna be great. Mm. Um, are you reading a bio? Well, I have it. I'm not gonna read the whole okay, bio. Usually, it's just thing. <laughs> like I don't even know what it says at this point. <laughs> I can you want me to read it to you. Uh, oh man! Joe Lynn is a multidisciplinary conceptual artist and curator based off Detroit, Michigan. Oh, oh yeah, that's good. That's uh, good. <laughs> right now, I'm speaking with Jova Lynn, and we are in the med- meditation studio. <laughs> <laughs> it's quiet. We got some uh, candles lit, and yeah. Um, yeah. And Jova, as I said, is from Detroit. She's an artist and curator, and I'm really excited to be speaking with her. How are you doing? Same. Uh, happy to be here, chatting it up. Yeah. Feeling a little tired. Feeling a little tired. The end of a long month. Yeah. But I'm feeling good. How are you? I'm good. good. Yeah. I've been shooting this weird video. Yeah. With, with uh, the Michael Myers Halloween mask. And yeah. Today I was just sort of watching the 
footage, seeing how I feel, and maybe I might do like one more shot. But yeah, how are you feeling about it? Uh, confused. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know how it'll turn out. I think for this one, if I were to do an installation, which I think I will, I would probably create the same mylar setup and then have like monitors mm-hmm. placed over on top. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be really cool. Mm-hmm. That would be. Yeah. It's. I feel like being here is like. It's opening up a lot for me to think about in terms of pieces I want to make in the future. But then I'm also like so uncomfortable with some of the things I've made since I've been here. Uncomfortable what way? I think that I came, I have a couple shows happening. Oh, really? Um, I came with sort of, because I have this crazy job, I was like, I need to make as much work as possible. Because I have two shows happening in the fall, but one is a solo show. And it's work that is a mashup. It's the first time I have two bodies of work and it's the first time I'm showing both body, like pieces from both bodies of work at the same time. Mm. And I've always very much compartmentalized the different things that I'm making. And so when I was here or when I got here, I came here with the intention of sort of thinking about that show and trying to like parse through what I wanted to do with it. And Are the two things a tourist and visions of paradise? So no, the it's visions of paradise and then sites of power. Oh, sites of power. Okay. So I met with the gallerist and she was really interested in pieces from both bodies of work. Okay. And I was like, they're very different <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out how they interact in it. At the end of the day, it's all me. So I know I am the thing that connects yeah. all of the work. But at the same time, aesthetically, like I just shot my first photographic triptych and I usually shoot individual scenes or diptychs and never triptychs. It's just funny to me because it's like aesthetically also really different and really draws both bodies of work together. And I think it's made me uncomfortable because even though that was my goal, it's still like... Feels foreign. It's weird. It's like super weird. And then I'm working on this floor sculpture And usually when I'm making things, I make things that are supposed to be things. So Mm -hmm. like, I'm like, I want to make a machete. I'll make a machete. I want to make a gate. Like maybe it won't be an exact replica of those things, but it's, it's always like I'm making this thing. And so this weird floor piece, it reminds me of like an oyster shell sort of, but it's not that. And Mm. it's just like. Again, that like crunchy, annoying place where I feel like everything's slipping together. Mm -hmm. And although I know it's a really good practice, it's still like the desire to compartmentalize is so strong that I'm like, and it's like I'm fighting myself a little bit. Yeah. Trying to like chill. Well, you have time. Yeah. Fall is is quite some time away. It's also like I have some works in a group show at Crystal Bridges, which is really exciting. And that's opening. It's supposed to be a good, good space. Yeah. Yeah. In spite of it being down south and by Walmart. <laughs> yes, let's talk about that. Um, it's supposed to be, and I'm like uh, showing with people who I knew in college or I met in high school, and it's so crazy because it's like we're all artists and it's pretty incredible to be in the show together. And I'm only showing work for Visions of Paradise and that. And so to get back into like thinking about power as I make these like weird tropical parse like objects is like super strange yeah and I'm like I mean that work is I they literally picked up the work while I was here and so then I'm like oh my god I can't make any changes to anything like this is the work that they have Mm -hmm. now and I'm like 
I think that's in the back of my mind too. So I'm, even though the fall is far, it's like, I'm thinking about what that, how that show will set a certain precedent for how the work is presented. So then how can I like keep building on that? And before I got here, I had a show in Philly, um, at Vox Populi, which is pretty cool. Do you know them? It's like the cool space that all the artists know about. Yeah, that's really and good. I, well, the cool space also, I think all the artists of our caliber can aspire to show. Yeah, it it's really, really I love, I mean, I love it. And it, they're so fun to work with. And I, I did this, um, the show is called Before I Let Go. Uh-huh. And I showed three works, which is like unheard of for me. What like, do you, what do you mean? Like. I showed only three pieces in the oh, show. Oh, you only show more? Yeah. Okay. Usually I show more or usually I show one, but like never, it's either like a ton or a little. Yeah. And so I did a piece that was, it's like a performative installation called a cathartic exercise in rage where I collect that material, white material of servitudes and I recall it or white ceramics and I rename it white fragility and I painted a wall red and then performed at the opening, the collapsing of that, like of the, or the breaking yeah. of those objects. And then I had one photograph and one video and I was like, what am I doing? Like, it just. The thing, if I believe when I went mm-hmm. on your website, that's the one where the description was 200 pounds of white for mm-hmm. I didn't know that that was a performance. I just saw, mm-hmm. cause I just, I don't, I'm trying to think, I don't even. I, don't, I have not updated my website in a really long oh, okay. time. Okay. I, I was like, <laughs> I just thought. I just, I don't know what happened, but I just saw the title, but I didn't know yeah. that a performance was happening yeah. on it. Yeah. So it's not, it's participatory. And so that's why when I like play with that museum or like, like, uh, the wall label, I put it as it's technically the artist is homies, not really me. Mm. Um, because I feel like it's a, like a, it's a collective calling into our rage. So every time I also, every time it's performed, I take the remnants of the first performance and any other performance subsequently and then add it. Like it's, mm. it's always being built up. And I think something I really like about that piece is eventually it's going to turn into nothing. Like the porcelain is, yeah. is it's going to turn to dust. It's dust. Yeah. And just Which like, is a hazard. Yeah. Right. Like but also, is a hazard. <laughs> also I think it's like this, like it just doesn't really exist. Like it exists, but it doesn't exist. Yeah. It's like a thing within a thing. Yeah. And, how, what does it mean for your rage to exist, but not exist? But it's just, like, my mind was so deep in that, like, performative, like, yeah. how am I gonna shape this? And like, the, I, the photograph I showed was this photograph of my mother that from like, so many, many years ago, and like, reappropriating mm. family photograph and objects. And so to come here... <laughs> like a month after that and just like be in a world of tropical is just like, it's amazing. But also still like, I think that's part of where my stretching is coming from. Yeah, like yeah. letting myself give into the discomfort of yeah. this, but it's like, it's very, I think being here has made me think a lot about how like everything I make really does feel like a performance, whether Mm. anything happens with it or not. Yeah. And like, how can I, I was talking to, I don't know if, I don't think I was talking to you. I was talking to Julie, I think, um, who's another artist here. And we were, I asked her, you know, she also has sort of characters in her world. And I was like, are you, are you creating characters or are they alter egos? Cause that's a question that people ask me a lot. Yeah. And for me, the 
performances or the characters that appear in my performances feel not like alter egos, even though they are fragments of me. And I think when I'm in the studio making, it's like, I don't, I also feel like that's a performance, even though it's a performance just for me. And so I think I'm trying to also parse out like, okay, if I'm performing as like, often I'll say I'm performing as paradise making this thing. Like paradise is one of the characters in the fictional world. If I'm performing as her making this thing, where then where do I begin and where does she end? Yeah. And like how I feel very safe in saying she's a character and not an alter ego, even though she's a fragmentation of yeah. like me. I mean, it's a type of like it's an alternate way of looking at like code switching, right? Yeah. Yeah. You Which know? is also what the work is about. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get too deep into yeah. that, we'll return. Oh, you want to... Talk briefly about where you grew up and what was yeah. um, how art sort of enters your life. Yeah. Um, or maybe it always was part of your life. Both. Yeah. So I, it's funny, there's this video, one of my first video pieces I made in grad school was this video and it's my second birthday and it's also the second time the U.S. declared war. Um, it was the second Gulf Coast War, like okay. that. It coincided. It coincided with that. So it's this like weird video installation that I made where it's like and I subtitled it where it's like everybody's at my birthday party except the news is blaring and I'm given this gift that is a art like a artist smock and like okay. easel and yeah. I just start painting it's super weird but the but the sound bites but of the, the news, sound is okay. like this war like thing nice. that's nice it's a strange piece but that is to say that art has always kind of been there um my family my mother's Jamaican and my father's Colombian. And I grew up with my mother and my aunt who are twins. And my aunt had a, one child who I call my sister. And my sister was born six months before me. But her father died six weeks after she was born. Shit. So I lived with, when I came home from the hospital, Elena was living in the house because mm-hmm. my mom was like, I'm about to have a baby. You have a baby. Let's support each other. Yeah. And my parents split. And so I was very, very close to um, Lena's father's side of the family. And her grandfather is Albert Huey, who's known as the father of Jamaican painting. And so when I was a kid we would often spend time in his studio. And actually, Lane is a painter, so it's really funny where we both have landed. Yeah. So we would always go to his studio. My Uncle David at the time would always drive us, and Uncle David was like a photographer. I don't know if he'd ever call himself a photographer, but he definitely did Yeah, he has an all that photography. And so he, I like followed him a lot and was like really interested in just like documenting everything I saw. And so I think between like Grampy Huey, is what I call her, Huey, mm-hmm. and my uncle and, you know, my aunt and my mom were the f- like basically the first people to say we're not going to be doctors or diplomats in my family. Really? And but yeah. the rest of the family. The were... rest of the family, like my grandmother was the first black gynecologist in Jamaica mm. and my grandfather was a diplomat. Yeah. And then wow. there's a lot of doctors, <laughs> a lot of doctors besides my grandmother. And you grew up where? And I grew up in New York City. Born there? Born and raised okay. in New York City. I feel like a unicorn often because I'm like... Everyone else like, lived like somewhere not, else yeah. and came there. Yeah. yeah. And New York... 
New York, I mean, I spent a lot of time between New York and Jamaica as a kid. Mm. And when I was a kid, my mom was a travel agent. And so Visions of Paradise comes from my, very much it's rooted in my childhood and like hearing my mom explain or like tell clients, book people tickets to paradise. My mom was a workaholic. Mm -hmm. There is a workaholic. And so I think Visions of Paradise came from this place of like trying to navigate the personas that I saw within my household that like weren't really a part of my household, mm -hmm. but also like Island as persona going to Jamaica and seeing it and like having a tourist experience, but also a native experience. And so the code switching I did between New York, Jamaica and like the weird in between that I existed yeah. is a big part of my life. How do you feel your relationship was to Jamaica as a kid? <sighs> I was a safe place. Okay. It was a place that was warm, literally, but uh -huh. also most of my family was there at the time. So and only so, like your mom and her sister were sort of in New York? My mom and my aunt were in New York and then we had some family in Maryland, but like the whole family would get together in Jamaica. Yeah, that's nice. So that was like the time where we all sort of had each other. And yeah. we there's my my mom's sister has a kid who's like eight months younger than me. So me, Lena and Janelle were really, really close. But I always knew, I mean, first of all, I'm like also a light skinned person. So I knew there's, and when I go to Jamaica, I will always be American. Like, and that is very distinct. But when I'm in America and I would like pull out my lunch, <laughs> it would be like, what is that grossness? Like probably like curry chicken or something like that. And people would be like, what is that? That's like terrible. Yeah. So it was just this like weird feeling as a kid of like, no place really being home, but like yeah. me being very aware of my Americanness or very aware of my Jamaicanness, and neither of them actually amounting to anything yeah. in terms of outsiders. Yeah. And I think growing up in New York, where it's like such a diverse city, it's kind of surprising that I felt that way, but I really did. Yeah. Like just really disconnected. And and then like as I've gotten older, going to Jamaica more less often but at least once a year and like getting to know the land and making friends on my own has been really intense because it might it was like Jamaica was really about my family yeah. and like these like you know my grandmother is still alive and like being present for the family yeah. and doing all these things and now I think last time I was in Jamaica I spent a month there and it was really I was working on a project so I was there longer than usual but it was still really important to me to, or it's still really important to me to feel like it's my place, even if everybody is calling me white when I walk down the street and yeah. I obviously really? don't they, look white. They call you, wait, they call you white <laughs> in Jamaica? Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, part, partially it is the Americanness, like white is a euphemism for American. Mm. So it doesn't matter that my skin is not white. It's, it's the way I move you. I don't, yeah. I don't move like I don't, I don't think they're, people don't really say black there. It's like you're Jamaican because everybody's of African descent. Yeah. So like that, like blackness is like a qualification. It's not there in the same way that it is here. Right. And so people either call me, tend to call me white or brown. <laughs> uh, but black doesn't really exist. Yeah. And it's interesting because my sister is darker skinned than me and she's full fledged Jamaican. And sometimes people will still like, call her white. Mm. And so it's, 
that's just an interesting. Is it is it derogatory in their eyes when they call you white? I don't think so, but I find it to be derogatory. Yeah, I would, yeah, yeah I would too. it's like it's very like the first time it happened, I was I felt like I was slapped in the face, yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, okay, like yeah. I get this, and I mean, it's also like the class privilege to travel back and forth. Mm-hmm. Is very intense and like the class dynamics in Jamaica are very, very real. And my family, you know, I can listen to Patois and understand Patois completely. But the way you pronounce things really describes your class. So like the friends that I've made, for example, some of them are really surprised because they're just like, like, they're like, you're so generous. You're so kind. You're so, and I'm like, am I not supposed to be? But the You're the, not supposed the, to be? No, no, no. I, I asked, am I not supposed oh, to okay. be? And they were saying, you know, usually people of a certain class, which means people who are not poor, are kind of like, I mean, this is an overwhelming stereotype, let me say. But like, like don't interact with people of a lower class system. Mm. And so I think it's been really interesting to, to know my class, but to like operate as though I would in the United States, because here those things are real, but exist differently I don't know especially to, in New York too yeah where everyone's like neck to neck with each other yeah I think I mean I think class dynamics across the board are so strange because then I we would go to Jamaica and have this like really amazing lush time and then be in New York living in a tiny ass apartment yeah. and just like I didn't that was really confusing for me like how yeah. how do we have a certain ability to move in a certain way in one place and not in the other. And so I think that's also like a part of the code switching is like, for me is just thinking about how I actually know all, like all of these landscapes at the same time. And then it's, I've never really thought about how I know when to do the switch. I just know. And like the falsehood of the promise of like, this utopian experience that is supposed to be Jamaica when actually like a lot of, it's really hard. It's a hard place. It's super conservative, super radical, super like queer, super closeted. Like it's like a, it's a place that is both and as the United States is too. But I think the way people or even myself have desired this escape to this paradise is like, so interesting to me because it's none of it is real like people are really fucking poor and like it's just like actually problematic i mean i think the desire for paradise is it's the idea of the dream right and it supersedes so many things yeah i mean mean, you could call like the american dream is a form of paradise for sure yeah it's just it's like the soul driving force of our economy yeah (laughs) it's like always aspire to this and i think like the idea of escapehood and finding this utopia within that like perpetual climb up this endless mountain that like is actually quicksand just like is so weird. Cause then it's like, no matter what, you're always looking for something else Yeah. instead of like being present and being like, this is what is here right now. And I think like colonialism in that sense has never really ended. Like, you know, Jamaica has been independent for several years now over 50 years, but like, it was one of the last Caribbean islands to get independence and they're still British Virgin Islands, U S Virgin Islands. It's still like existing within this like very colonial structure of like exploitation and like perpetual debt and all those, all those, all those islands. Right. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, visions of paradise is not an argument. It's not saying don't travel. It's not saying like, this is bad. This is good. It's more like, 
you know, ultimately <laughs> it's an archive for a place that doesn't exist. Yeah. And like my mom and my aunt, so part of why it exists is that, or part of why I make this work is when I was younger, I came across this random ass VHS in my, my, like my mom's bookshelf and it was called Spaceship Earth. And I was Spaceship like, Earth. what is this? Yeah, Spaceship Earth. And I was like, what is this? And it was like a 19, I think it was a 1970 or 72, I can't remember, <laughs> some sort of conference on environmental impacts and climate change. That's At early. the time it was called global warming. Yeah. And in Sweden, and it was all these people from the United Nations and uh, local, like, national governments talking about this issue of global warming. And I watched it. I, like, digitized it because my mom was like, oh, your grandfather's in that. And I was like, oh, let me, oh. like, let me see. And at the time I was digitizing, like, I'm always the person in the family that's, like, taking the VHS, making it digital, or, yeah. like, finding the photos, scanning them, whatever. Were you doing that? Are you doing that as an artist or are you doing that? I don't know. <laughs> it's just like, I just, it's like, a, it's like my obsession. I yeah, just yeah. like, I want all of the family, like, especially because, you know, I feel like Lane and I, that's my sister's name, were born after this like golden era, like both in travel, both in like dyna like familial dynasty and legacy. Like it was like this time of like amazingness. In, in Jamaica. In Jamaica. Okay. Um, but also like, I think in my family legacy, I think it, I mean, maybe we were born into it too, but like things really changed. Like I would say after the two, like 2000 hit, like, mm. so I often look at advertisements or family archives from like 1970 to like 1990, sometimes the sixties are involved. And so I found this VHS and my grandfather's in it and he's just like talking about soil erosion and endless earthquakes and Caribbean economy and how, nations can't exist with the sort of economic structure that we have while global warming, again, this was language at the time, was happening because the islands wouldn't exist yeah. eventually. Yeah. And so he was in this film. And at the time, my mom and my aunt were living in Germany because my grandfather was the Jamaican ambassador to Germany. And they were living in Bonn and they were studying environmental law. And they wrote this book about, it was called The Third World and Environmental Policies and Their Potential Impact. Mm. And so last time I was in Berlin, it like I, I have part it? of the book. It's in, it's actually at a university in Bonn. So next time yeah. I go, I have to go back. It's but all I, German. Yeah, it's all German, except there are some, anyway, there's, I've been through a whole like thing with the fucking library there to try to like get it. And they were like, we'll do this for it. It was, a, it's a long story. German, but, German libraries are so fascinating. Yeah, they're really interesting. Yeah. And I was like, my mom really like wrote this. Can you, like, I need it? And whatever. And so they compiled this thing and I, like, read as much as I could about it and of it. And then I realized, like, just looking at the current state of the Caribbean and climate change and all these things that like everything my grandfather was saying was like coming true and like everything that my mom and aunt, all the research that they did around environmental policy and like how it's like we're creating a horrible future for the Caribbean was also true That's crazy. and so this. yeah it's super weird and so when I was in grad school this is before grad school. This is right one like before grad school. And then I was going all my work was about like Afrofuturism, like weird before grad school. Before grad school okay. and like documentary film. So then for undergrad I studied ethnography and video art. 
And so, and then I ended up working at a documentary company and then switching back into like visual arts. And so I started taking pictures of paradise before I knew she was paradise. Like with like, I was obsessed with like these coconuts and the machete and just like the cutting of it. And there's a Jamaican figure called Queen Nanny, who's basically the Jamaican Harriet Tubman who like freed a lot of slaves Mm -hmm. just using a machete. Often she would trick slave masters into thinking she was going to sleep with them and then would kill them. them. And so that's badass. just like, and then I realized the body that I was embodied, like the, the character I was embodying was also like, there was something about the body and the land that became like morphed into one. Mm. And then paradise became a place. And it still is this like, you know, I think photography as somebody who's drawn to the lens, photography for me is one of the most, most exploitative fields. Like there's not much consent often in photography. There is and there isn't the like legacy of photography deeply rooted into anthropological practice and human exploitation is very real. And so I just was like, I'm making an archive of a place that like has never existed and won't exist. And I often refer to Jamaican advertisement and culture in it. Sometimes I don't, when I make any object that's being shown, it's usually because somebody has talked about it either with the travel agent or paradise. Yeah. And like, I think part of why the work I'm making here is freaking me out because it's, it looks the most archival aesthetically compared to everything else. So you're afraid it's going to just sort of become real it, or it, like people treat it as real versus previous iterations where people are like, oh, that's art. Is that what you mean? You're, you're- no, because people think it's real sometimes. Like oh. when I set up the travel agency, oh, okay. it's like the worst. Some, I mean, it's amazing. And I love be the, being the travel agent. Yeah, yeah. But that people come in thinking it's a real place. And when I perform, I don't break character, like no matter what. Wait. Yeah. For the travel agent, you you set up a booth. So I only saw them as like photographs. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the travel agent has is the owner and proprietor of Paradise Travel Company, where you can only book a ticket to Paradise. <laughs> and so... The photographs, the like souvenir photographs are Um. put in that installation. And then the travel agent is there to book tickets to Mm -hmm. paradise. And so usually when a client comes in, they will fill out a survey that's based on their utop, their like desires. And so the survey looks like desired um, experience, native Taurus, blah, blah, like it's just like Native. options or like what kind like desired souvenirs, desired duration, like yeah, yeah. all built around desire. And then people have come in and thought they could book a ticket to Japan or like thought they could like <laughs> go to this place. And like it's super it actually is so sad when it happens though, because yeah. it's like not art world people who are entering the space, which I think is also important for yeah. the work. But then it's like always being like but like, actually, we can only book you a ticket to paradise, <laughs> just like always going back to paradise, paradise, paradise. And while the travel agent is booking the ticket, really what she's doing is typing paradise over and over and over and over and over again for like eight hours at a time. So it's Do like they a, hand you a credit card. No, they don't have to. Okay. I kind of, I, I think that's like the next duration yeah. is like having them do that and seeing what happens. <laughs> uh, but I feel like I need to figure out like the release form and what that would look like. Cause I'm like, Ooh, um, but it's, yeah, it's, I think so it's less about people thinking that it's real. It's more like the archive being activated in a different way. Mm-hmm. And 
it's like I, I utilize a lot of like gestures towards humor mm-hmm. and I never want to feel like the joke is on me. Like I like the joke is on the place. Yeah. And, you know, like I don't feel like native Jamaicans or Rasafari, like they're I'm not I'm not making fun of anybody. Yeah. And like I'm I'm trying to say this is a collective archive that yeah. is like very real and withstands the test of time, but also like is actually really funny. Yeah. Like if you look at these ads from like the seventies, one of the images you probably saw on my website. Um, is of this paradise in a red shirt and there's this like like standing in water and it says like people go to paradise because of the beautiful seas like mm-hmm. whatever that is literally a reproduction of mm-hmm. a Jamaican tourism ad yeah. and then I print it which is not on my website but I print it as a 30 page newspaper spread mm-hmm. where the image is repeated over and over and over and over and What's funny about that image is that it's the most iconic image in Jamaican tourism, but also the woman in the image is Trinidadian, not Jamaican. Mm -hmm. And so this like, how do we use people's bodies to replace a place? And like, what does it mean? You know, I know all the the privileges I have as a light-skinned person who is actually American doing all of these things. And like, I think it's... I think people are always trying to figure out if I'm trying to say don't travel, but I'm just really not. It's just like, yeah. it's just no, when you travel, this is not, this is a part of it. Yeah. Like before Trump was elected, I was doing all these performances where I would like carry in cinder blocks and make a wall and then set up my like the AstroTurf and like hang out just cause I also am obsessed with walls and in Jamaica, everything is gated and everything is walled off. And like, as soon as Trump was elected, I had to stop doing that. Cause like, then the wall means something different. And so I'm trying to like think about the next phase of the work and like, how can this archive become real, but also how can like the elements of the sites of power and that like power in subverting this like horrible, like intensely like um, exploitative practice of travel, like be kind of, kind of coexist for me. Yeah. It's complicated. It's really hard. It's like, you know, Sites of Power was like, I just, I was trying to figure out, I I tried to, so that video that I talked about where I was a kid and all this horrible things were happening and I was just listening to it, whatever. And for that, when I presented that video, it was like a multi-channel installation. I had the whole table of champagne. It was like, I like showed it during a grad school crit and had a bunch of champagne and like, I like was like, everybody like sing happy birthday. Let's do like, let's have a fucking party. It's 9 a.m. Like whatever. And I got really terrible, terrible feedback on it. They were like, I don't get it. Blah, blah, blah. This doesn't make you, any which, sense. Yeah, what'd you think of that? And I was just like, at the time I was like, what the fuck? This is fucking insane. How yeah. you don't see how this is like the American value system is so weird. And I became really really afraid to make that work like like again or what do you mean like I became I just sort of like I just I stopped I I tried to like reference my family's archive but I feel like people didn't get it and I became afraid of doing that Mm. and so I took a I like did a few other performance pieces that were like more endurance performance. Like I have the video of me eating the Aki. Aki is poisonous. So eating it and regurgitating and keep continuing to eat it. So like. And this fruit is, is native to Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, and that for me was the starting off point, like both the childhood video and that performance was sites of power. And I was thinking about where the Aki video is really for me about like how I felt like my family just eats grief and like, can't, there's no time to process or no time to like talk about it. We're just like silent in it. Yeah. And then I started to think, okay, if I'm saying we're silent in it, then where are we powerful? And so I started making a lot of work with hair because I was thinking about what, where's the first place where I learned to feel powerful or to feel intimate in my power. And it was from sitting in between my mother, my aunt, my babysitter, whoever's legs while they were doing my hair. And so I started to look at like iconic imagery from eras where they would probably be getting their hair done. So like, how did they learn this sort of intimacy and like version of like power and how did, how was that given to me generationally? And then I, I started thinking a lot about Queen Nanny and that fucking machete and just like what it means for like a woman, specifically a black woman to hold an object that is supposed to be used for violence Mm. and whether, whether or not, and when you make the choice to be violent or not. So then I started interviewing other people, largely queer, black, female spectrum people on their relationship to power and where they learned it. And I would make videos, make objects, and then always make a knife at the end. Make a knife. Yeah. Like while you're interviewing them, you're. No, no, no. But at the end of like, like to close out their story. So all the knife studies are other people's stories. Mm. How, how would the interviews take its form or was the final object just a knife? So basically like the first one was I asked my friend to take me to every, every place she ever lived. And we ended up at her grandmother's house. The funeral was at the grandmother's house. She hadn't been there in a long time. It was Detroit. So the house became blighted because a pipe burst and they couldn't fix it. Mm -hmm. And I went back to the house with her, her mom, her sister, like, just like, Spent like six months going back and forth between this house and ended up doing a video where I strapped a camera on her chest and I was like, pick the most important objects in the room and do something with them. And she did. So there's an image of of my body in a red dress and that was her grandmother's dress Mm because she was a singer. She did like Motown stuff and the song she's singing is Marvin Gaye's I Want You, which Mm. is a song her uncle wrote. Really? And so it's just this like weird... So I made that video. I like did a whole piece that was very much like Vanessa's image. And then I made the knife and presented it as mine Hmm. and not as mine, but in an advertisement, like, because I feel like these things, like there's something very, I'm like very drawn to ad culture and the consumption of it. And so I did that with her. And then I went through a process with my mom that was similar, except like less like, let's go to all the places and more like, tell me all these things and a couple other people. And then that series has come to be. Hmm. And I still don't know, you know, I think it's so daunting for people to see knives. They're just like, why should I care about this? But I'm just like, you think it's daunting for people to see knives? I think they're, I just think people don't get it, which um, is fine. And oh, I don't give a fuck, but it's like, it's like, why are you making a knife? And I'm just like, I'm making this weapon that is like the symbolism of this like yeah. powerful human who yeah. existed. And like, you know, I think the knife, it's scary and it's violent, but it's also like powerful and sexy and like really an amazing tool for like 
just like existing in the yeah. world. And so when I went to Jamaica to do the Soft Thrones work, I did a, a workshop series with all these LGBTQ identified women in the island. And then we went, we like talked about our relationship to power and what that looks like, whatever. And then we went to different places. I didn't know what I was going to do. First of all, I knew I wanted to do workshops on power. I didn't know what photographs I wanted to take. I just was like, yeah. let's talk about power. I know this is a group. And I got a really big grant to to do the project. And so I paid the participants also to be in it. So not just for their image, but to come to the workshops and like nice. do these things. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. Um, and are you still processing what the final form is? Nope. Oh. So the final form, and this is not on my website. That's what I was asking. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. Like, I was like, is this? So they, I took the portraits where like they're each on a different kind of throne. Mm. And then... I made each of them a machete. So that's, they're not on the website. They probably should be. I just have not had time. But yeah, so it's, hard, it, it's, it's hard to keep everything up. To yeah. Date. So it's like they each have a machete. And so for the show that I'm talking about in September, I'm going to show the Soft Thrones portraits, just the photographs, not the machetes. And then I have these archival photos of Paradise that are going to be mixed up with them. Not the character Paradise, but like, imagery from paradise like like the fake palm tree yeah okay. but that's not going in <laughs> but like the fake yeah 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 like the fake palm tree so it's like you know i think putting like and I'm, a, just for the listeners like what i'm talking about is there's an image where joy constructed a palm tree that's what i mean by fake yeah out of, i think papers or different materials yeah. and it's like there's in, a paper in, palm tree there's a resin like astroturf a photo lab or yeah photo studio so. yeah so there's there's like a I often, that's what I'm saying, like make things that are real, but not quite real, but like trying to be this thing that like, who cares what it actually is. Yeah. But I, I think the world of Visions of Paradise very much exists in this realm of like camp and the world of sites of power is like more serious, more social practice-y, like a little bit more heavy handed. And so... How do you make the heavy hand and the camp just sing together? It's interesting. I never thought of your work as camp because, I mean, not that it can't be, but no. I, because I just haven't seen a lot of your performances. Yeah. I feel like once it becomes a performance, once you it see it, camp. yeah, it's yeah. like, it is camp hard. And I, I mean, there's a lot, I feel like camp also for artists of color, black artists too, has like very much been taken away. Like mm -hmm. we are not a part of the language of camp, which is like so opposite of what is true. Like there's a long legacy of artists of color making camp work. And so I think in many ways, like I'm trying to think about how the work can still resonate in that camp arena without having to be a video or a performance. Cause mm -hmm. like videos, video is my first love. So it's like my stronghold. Like I can make a good video. That's like not the question. I think, you know, I went to grad school and all I had made was videos. Really? Like I had never, I made like sculptures here and there and installations, but they were always video installations, like not like object or like these like entire room site specific installations. Yeah, yeah. And I applied to Cranbrook for sculpture because I was like, okay, I know I can make video installations via sculpture, like a video installation one could argue is a sculpture. And then the head of photography called me and was like, why did you not apply to photo? And I was like, I don't know. The, the sculpture department had video installations on the website. Like I just like, I also did not do my due diligence when yeah. applying to grad school. Although I'm very happy with the program I ended up in. 
And she was like, all your work is through the lens. Why would you not? And I was like, oh, you're right. And just like, didn't really think about it. And I think at this point in my career, I'm really trying to push myself to not rely on just the moving image anymore. And like, not rely on, because I made a lot of multi-channel pieces in my life. So like, how can I say something more singularly? Or like, how can I activate the body even if my body is not present? You know, something with this gallery show is like, I want to have a performance. I don't know what that is yet. Yeah. But like, there's something that has to happen in that space to activate it so that, but also like, I can't be there all the time. So how can it still exist? Yeah. But maybe I don't want any monitors. Maybe I do. I don't know. It's just like this, this weird thing that I'm trying to figure out. And when I, I was in Copenhagen this fall and I went to see Piplati Reese show, they had like a big retrospective at Louisiana. The same with that was at the new museum. Different. And it was like, it was, it felt like way more work. Okay. And maybe I'm just like not remembering the new museum as much, but it was a ton of work. And she had this tiny, teeny, teeny little projection that was like, was it the butthole one? It wasn't the butthole one. <laughs> it was like, no, it was this other one. It was, I can't remember what was happening in it, but one of the first video installations I made in grad school, besides the, the birthday thing, was I had all these rotten coconuts and I put pocket projectors in them oh. and like had these videos of random people on vacation, okay. just like in this rotten coconut stand. And I was just like, I've been thinking a lot about how I've been avoiding video as a way to not have to deal with like the impact that a video has in a space. But then I'm like seeing that show. I was like, Is it oh, like I a challenge for yourself? Really, really small. What, 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 I think it's a challenge impetus? for myself, but it's also like, it's you know what I think? No, no, sorry. <laughs> don't question yourself. I'm just like, I was like, I think, am, I, am I taking advantage of the video's presence? No, <laughs> but the I mean, that's the powerful thing about video. Yeah, the video is yeah. present. Yeah, when yeah. you like, I think I think maybe this is the curator in me that's like talking now is like when you put a video in a room, your eyes are going to go to the video. Like yeah. it's not it's like even if you have the teeniest, tiniest little projection, it's still like something's moving. Yeah. And so like and that for me, the video and the body exist hand in hand. Yeah. And I think it's less of a criticism, more of a like if I'm cr trying to create an archive and like trying to use other people's bodies to activate it, like do I need to return to those tiny videos where I make someone stand a certain way instead yeah. of like having just a monitor in a room yeah, or like just a large. And I think there's a time and a place for just a large projection. Like I really yeah. do. I'm just trying to figure out like I never wanted to be only a video artist. And because I know that's like my strong suit, I'm trying to like, how can I lean Branch into out. these other things yeah. that like, and I think now many people wouldn't know because I also don't post my videos online. Like people have to ask me for them just because I, I feel very protective over them. So on my website, I only have stills from yeah. videos, but I also like, think I, I'm thinking a lot about the video as like the ultimate version of the archive. And so how can I parse into these other versions? And like still utilize that like lens practice yeah. and like subvert that like exploitative anthropological like gaze. Yeah. But like not only rely on this thing where it's like. So I guess I'm also I'm trying to say I'm returning to video and trying to be less afraid of it because I've made so, you, so much photos lately. So in grad school, you did mostly video. 
I did, I would say I did a sculpture and video a lot, but my thesis was a photo and I was like, what the fuck is, <laughs> I didn't expect that. I should have being in the photography department. And so that, I think my last year of grad school is when I really accepted that, like, I actually am a photographer, which is so funny because I've been taking photographs and like document like there are rogue videos of me as a teenager on youtube that really? like where like i have a little channel where i'm like no yeah, yeah. yeah. I, i'll show it to what you it it's about? just it's just like me and my friends in new york like yeah. it just is just so <laughs> insane it's just like these videos are too long and like that was like You're and, just running around new york and just doing, like running around shit. new york doing different things and yeah. then like i really like making mixtapes so like obviously the soundtrack like i'm like listening to the soundtrack of this weird film is mm. like a mixtape of my teenage life. And I'm like, God, I'm just the most emo, insane <laughs> who, human. Who, who isn't at that age? I know, I know. But just like a return, I feel like a returning and is happening for me. And I'm yeah. looking a lot at found footage and trying to think about, it's really interesting because when I perform these characters, especially the tourists, I have to be in a like tourist setting. Yeah. And so, and I really leave that solely to the Caribbean, but I've been traveling so much. So I, I made one video when I was in Germany and I think there's stills of it. Um, also just random online, yeah. fact, me and Jove have like this connection in yes. Berlin because yes. <laughs> there's a specific restaurant called Rosa Kleta, which I've eaten at that's, uh, is uh, owned and, and created by Kirk and Troy, mm-hmm. and you have a relationship with Kirk. Yes, so. yes, Kirk well, is my cousin. So when we first met, um, <laughs> she was like, yeah, there's this Jamaican restaurant in Christberg, and I was like, there's not too many of that in Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah. And whenever I go to Berlin, I, I like I don't eat German food at all. I'm just like, chill yeah, German food kind of is very... It's hard. Yeah, it's, it's hard. hard. It's hard. hard. <laughs> but um, the... But I had I made one video while I was in Germany at the um, or in Berlin at the was the airport Tempelhof. Yeah, and I was so pissed because like it's funny because like they were like in order to shoot video here you have to go on the tour like we're like very much I had to go like not and I want like inside the building. Oh okay. Yeah yeah not outside and just like was thinking a lot about the legacy of sugar and travel and like this consumption because I had I made this found footage video of all these like European commercials that are about candy but it's all like tropical like footage of like island culture yeah yeah but it's like very much like candy mm-hmm. advertisements mm-hmm. and I became like really interested in like the history of sugar and transport and what that meant in terms of a legacy so I, I've shot the tourist that is the only video of the tourist that exists outside of the Caribbean and so I think I'm also trying to figure out, okay, how, how can, like, can I open this up a little bit more? And if I do, how, what is always the, like, connection yeah. back? Because, like, for me, it was sugar and, like, German import, importing sugar through that airport really bizarrely, like, during, like, prior to the wars, whatever. And now I'm like, okay, if I go... If I go, when I go to other countries, how can I still activate this yeah. narrative? Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, super weird. But like, yeah, I mean, I think I was talking to a curator, and yeah, if you're just like the more specific you are, the technically the potentially smaller the audience, and then the more generalized it is, mm-hmm. the wider it is. And he was like, you should probably do a mix of both. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's really good advice, but it's also, and I also think that 
it's like people are always like, who's your audience? <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah. does it at, like at the end of the day, I'm trying to tell a story mm-hmm. and like, I don't really know who the audience is. When I share this work in the Caribbean, people are laughing because it's so ridiculous. Like, are they laughing at it? Or, I think or, they're or laughing the la- at it? and with. Okay, because it's that code switch. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. I when I show it here, people laugh too, but for different reasons. I think they laugh because they see themselves in it. Mm. And you know, the question of audience when I look, when I present sites of power to like white audiences they are just like this is a room full of knives what is happening but like when i like am showing it to artists of color black women that's like this is so powerful like i feel this (laughs) and i think at the end of the day like what makes a curator different from an artist is that an artist doesn't actually have to care and about the audience mm -hmm. i think you i think the best advice i've been given is to worry less about the audience Mm. Like to like embody the values of the work I'm trying to make, yeah. but not pay too close attention. And like my job as a curator is to yeah. think about audience and how audience engages. So it's just like, I think that my curatorial practice has definitely impacted my artistic practice and vice versa. Um, Do you want to talk about how you got into curating? Because I mean, right, right now Jova's a Ford fellow, right? At, at the um, yeah. Museum of Contemporary um, Art. I was, now I'm just... The curator there. That's better. The curator. Yeah. <laughs> the the curator um, of Detroit. Uh, at the <laughs> Museum of Contemporary Art Detroit. And I started as the curatorial fellow. That is true. And it's funny because I got... It was never your goal, right? Were you sort of curating for it? I was. So I, um, I, when I left college, I was working at a production company. And then I left that to work at the Museum of Moving Image and run a youth like youth art education video program. So like very social justice values. And I was like, you know, I really appreciated museums cause I could like still have this like formal conversation, but also like have it be rooted in a larger social context. And so I just ended up working at museums for most of my career, largely in education and public programs. So that meant curating smaller shows um, usually featuring like people, participants in our programs, art and writing curriculum and all those things. And then when I got to grad school, I was teaching at a school in Detroit while I was in school and I was doing like media art and education in a dance classroom. And Do you dance? I don't dance, mm-hmm. but I mean, performance is all movement anyway, sort of. <laughs> I will not call myself a dancer. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say, I would say a movement. Like, like yeah, okay, yeah. you know how you like yeah. your hand gestures, you're like yeah. the way you're, yeah. you all can't see me right now, but I'm, I'm flexing my body <laughs> a little bit. And I felt very burnt out from teaching. I mm. think working in the school was really beautiful and also really intense and Detroit yeah. schools need a lot of amazing educators like especially educators of color and there's amazing people doing amazing work to like make that happen in Detroit and I think I realized I was like really focused on education and it in a sense was like not helping my work in terms of like leaving from caring too much about what the viewer thinks and so I took a break and when I graduated I started helping coordinate an artist residency program through one of the education programs. And it was really awesome. Is it still running? Mm-hmm. 
They've been running forever. They are called, they used to be called Detroit Future Schools. Now they're called People in Education. Mm. They do amazing work. I love them. And so the curatorial fellowship at MOCAD came up and I had, I was working in San Francisco at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts at, in 2012. And I, I came and I did a visit to Detroit and I was thinking about, you know, Detroit was known at the time and still is, I think it's like the city of the future. Yeah, and I was that, like, that what are the perfect. things that like San Francisco or the Bay area can learn from Detroit? And I had a meeting at the museum of contemporary art and I was like, I love this place. It's so cool and so radical. And so all these things. What makes it those things compared to other. I, I mean, just, I don't know that it, I think it is, there are many other uh, radical places. Yeah. But I think that it was clearly a very small museum with big dreams mm. and also the only contemporary art museum in the city, mm. which like deeply Im is impacts the region because there's not many cities super close to Detroit. And so I saw the curatorial fellowship and I was like, I think I want to try this. And I had curated a few, like, the shows at the other museums and like a little bit in grad school and curating is a lot just like organizing, like being a community organizer. Yeah. It's like kind of like that. And I kind of fell into it. And then I got to the museum at a time where there was no curator. And so I had to hit the ground running and. So uh, while you were a fellow, you basically were the curator. Is that what you mean? Not, not, Yes. And I was doing a lot of heavy curating. I was working a lot with our executive director, who is now chief curator and executive director. And then there was me mm. and there was supposed there was another fellow, but she had to leave. Mm. And I think because of my background in museums and with institutional life, I had more responsibility than maybe your average bear. Mm. And so I was mentored a lot. We did end up getting a curator, but I was also mentored a lot by our executive director. Her name is Alicia Warrior Reader, and she's pretty cool. And then we got a curator who ended up having to leave to co-curate the, uh, the Athens Bayan Alley. And so... It has been, I've Just been you. there and yeah. we have two amazing curatorial fellows and now we have a new media curator. But like when I got there, it was very sparse. sparse yeah. And so I, I do, I do love the work. I like really, especially love working with like emerging artists who are like super hungry and generous. And I've learned a lot about my own practice in a weird way. And, you know, I, I was really nervous to take on the job job and my Alicia was just like, it's okay to be an artist curator. Yeah. Like I was very afraid of it. And she was yeah. like, no, it's okay. Well, was, I mean, so you talked briefly about like how you learned to not care about the audience. Is yeah. there something else you learned as a curator about your own work? Or? I think that less is more. Less is more. Less is more for sure. Hmm. That's like one of the less is more. As an artist, I don't have to care about the audience. As a curator, I do. Not that you don't have to care, but like, shouldn't be like. I sh I'm not. Center. I'm not like. Yeah, I'm not saying like I need because that means your work also becomes didactic, which I think many people are afraid of didactic work. I am not. I actually really enjoy didactic work, but I think there's a middle ground too that's really helpful. You think um, if you care too much about the audience, becomes didactic? No, I just think you know if I. Because I'm not trying to say this is good or this is bad. Yeah. I'm just trying to tell a story. Yeah. 
because my background is in like that documentary narrative, like uh, filmmaking for would, me, right. I would try to get to the end point. Mm. And I, I think as an artist, I'm trying not to get to the end point. Yeah. I'm trying to like just be in the, be in the process with folks. Like, I think that's a good tension. Yeah. It's scary sometimes though. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> you know, I tell myself that all the time. I'm just like, what yeah. am I doing? And my, it's so funny when my mom sees the work, she's like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I don't get it. Like, cause the paradise, paradise and the tourists existed before the travel agent. Uh-huh. And then when the travel agent came to be, my mom was like, oh my God. That's and me. That like, she yeah. like got yeah. it. Yeah, and I was yeah, like, yeah. okay, yeah. now we're here. <laughs> Cause I mean, and that's a point, a place in which like, it was good that I was like, what's the audience going to think of this and realizing I was missing a piece to the puzzle. And the most vulnerable piece was the travel agent because she's my mom. Like, Mm. and I think that's something I never wanted to really share. Like, Mm. but all the work is ultimately about my mom and me and like this like womanhood weird generational thing and like like how my mom and my grandfather were talking about the things that are literally happening right now like it's it's very very it's like it's all me and like I think it takes a while for people to get to know the work and what my practice is about but it's it really is just Jova and I think curating is like and the organizer in me that's like excited and the educator in me because curating you're organizing and educating and yeah. presenting and like yeah. you're doing all these things. And again, my goal is just to like uplift the voices of emerging artists as much as I can while I'm there. And I mean, there's the art world is a very scary place. It's so weird. It's a very weird place. So weird. And so that's another thing that I think I've learned being both is that it's like, okay to be afraid. Like it's not, and it's also okay to like, you know, there's so many different places in the art world. Like it really is a world. And Mm -hmm. I think artists, especially emerging artists, we put so much pressure on ourselves to like have a certain amount of shows or do this work or get this prize or do this thing. And it's like, you know, the like person painting or doing, making videos and they're like, who never show them to the world. Like that's still a part of the art world. Like, and I wish I seek an art world that like encompasses that a little bit more because it yeah. feels like it's either like low or high art. Yeah. And I think actually it's like that like in between place where the most radical work can be made. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm actually like super not into capitalism. And so like that's something that's like. I also really have to grapple with as an artist, like how do I feed myself, which is why I'm curating, like how do I feed myself and feed my practice, and but also like, and, yeah, yeah like I don't, yeah. it's all, it's all this desire to like create some sort of justice in all of these like things that I'm a part of. Yeah. I think that drives me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I have the same questions. I mean, I've been thinking a lot also about like, what does it mean to succeed? Mm. And then I think, my, my newest answer is sort of like, as long as I can keep doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Whatever that, whatever that means. Do you ever feel like it's like, I don't know if this is the Capricorn in me or what, but I'm just curious. Yeah. We're both Capricorns. (laughs) But like when you ask that question about success for you, is it also tied to happiness? Uh, what what does it mean to be like happy in your practice, to feel like content in your practice? Hmm. I don't know. I, th- you know, it's funny cause I, part, so like part also my fear 
the answer of like being able to continue my work is also, I guess the other answer would be like maintaining momentum. Mm. I'm afraid that if I don't maintain the momentum, I'll stop making art. Mm. Right. Cause like I, I can totally imagine myself like getting a okay job, mm-hmm. getting enough money, mm-hmm. getting a house. And then like the art kind of falls away, which is happens to like a lot of artists. Yeah. We've all seen that. And yeah. so like, so yeah, I don't know the contentness or happiness. I'm not sure. Yeah how to answer that it's confusing because yeah. i think for me it's like you know my my friends and my family are like oh my god joe you're so, so, so successful and i'm like i really don't feel like i am yeah. like i don't know what that means i don't know like and also like yeah i, I mean i mean so. i was talking to a professor who was he was like uh, i was out talking to someone when i was in maine giving a talk and the professor was like you know just be careful what you wish for because like this success underneath it can also feel like not success. And he was mm-hmm. like, you know, there's like artists who he was saying like they're part of a gallery and then mm-hmm. the gallery says like, okay, what kind of show do you want? And the artist is like, I want to make this show. And the gallery is like, okay, here's like $50,000 mm-hmm. or $60,000 to mm-hmm. make your show. The artist makes it, the show sells for like $120,000. Mm-hmm. The gallery gets half and then he has to <laughs> pay back the, the yeah. 50, 60 yeah. that was loaned. And then, so now like, the artwork is in like in MoMA, in the new museum, yeah. or like it's critically acclaimed. But like in the end of that two year period of that show, like no money was made. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like, what does that yeah. success look like? It's funny because my sister went to the school of visual arts and SBA. she had, yep. Uh-huh. Uh, and she had Tony Kushner as her commencement speaker. Okay. Which was so interesting. Um, Who's Tony Kushner? He's a playwright. He wrote um, Angels in America. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And he was saying, he like, it was such a good commencement speech. It's just so weird. It's like, I remember her commencement way more than I remember mine. (laughs) Um, And he was like, you know, the tricky thing about the visual arts is that it's the only field in the arts really where there are no royalties. (laughs) What do you and mean? Like, like, like how musicians get royalties. Oh yeah. Like yeah. how like, like writers even get royalties. Yeah, like once yeah. you, once you're published and I'm not saying everybody in these fields makes a lot of money because we know most yeah. of like only 1% really does. Not less than that one or 1%. But like, that's something that has always stuck with me. Yeah. And like, especially in making video and how to sell a video or uh, not I sell a video. I'm just like, how is this? I'm never going to see <laughs> yeah. a dime. Like yeah. you show this work and I'm never, and it's, it's also heartbreaking for me as a curator to tell artists, I can't pay you to show your work. Like yeah. you can have your work here, but I can't. So it's like that, like monetary success versus like, you know, I've been in a couple museum shows and I'm just like that's pretty cool. And so many artists aspire to that, but it still feels like it's not enough for some reason. And I'm like, why isn't like, why am I, I think the, what you're talking about, about momentum is really on my mind. Cause I'm like, okay, what if I don't do shows in 2021? What's that going to mean? Like, I gotta keep, I gotta figure it out. I gotta get that show going or else what's going to happen. And it's like, it's hard when like the art is, it's such a part of you and you are such a part of it. So like, I don't want, I could find a job. I don't think I'd be happy. Like I could just curate. And I think people are expecting me to just do that. I won't, but like, I think that's the expectations because actually so many curators were artists. Like, Mm -hmm. and so you got to make a living. You got to make a living. And that's like the weird thing is like, you know, art is supposed to like challenge all these systems, but it's still like very much like a part of it. Yeah. And like happiness, 
I know I asked you that question. I don't know how to answer that question yeah, for yeah, myself. No, uh, like, yeah, it's a good question. I just don't. Like, yeah. when is it enough? When have you, like, reached a place where you can be happy, where, like, you can still make the work, yeah. but you're not making it from this place where, like, I have to, like, keep this thing going, yeah. where it's just, like, I am making this because I'm making it. Yeah. And I think that's a privilege that's afforded to very few, but that I would like to see more artists who aren't, like, blue chip or, like, yeah like heavy like collector like blah 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 just like yeah just want to keep making and hopefully not feel complacent yeah which is why i always like make sure i never know what i'm doing Mm, that's really good (laughs) because i feel like if i know what i'm doing then like it becomes a form of complacency right like Mm -hmm. you see like not that it's bad but certain artists who are like have been doing the same thing for 40 years and there's an argument to be made of like refining a skill set like forever Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then but there's also like sometimes you do have to step back and question like have has things changed it's hard it's hard to answer no (laughs) I I mean I don't I honestly don't even know but I think it's also like something that's very unique to being an artist of color is always like you know most of the time I work intuitively like the photographs I took while I was here we happened to go to a big lots and I saw this pineapple (laughs) and I'm like super obsessed with pineapples and I was like I like this like it like came to me yeah, you know yeah. like I knew what my goals were but I didn't have like a piece in mind yeah, yeah. and like working intuitively is something that I don't think artists of color are afforded which I think is problematic like I think there always has to be and although there is an explanation for why I make the work I make like I still feel like it's like that like for me to just go into them and be like I was just thinking about, you know, I saw this pineapple and I was just like, I just got to do this. Like would just be unheard of. And like, that's where like the curator in me is trying to step in and be like, I want to provide more room for us to have, to just be like, this is just my thought this morning. I rolled out of bed. I had my tea and I was like, I'm thinking about lights today. And so you make like a, you know, I just, I wish we had to. Because there's so much pressure. Yeah. Right? Because we're always co-switching. Yeah. A lot of people, uh, artists and people of color. And mm-hmm. so we're always aware of those symbolisms. And then especially when you get in the art world, you see, you see all the successful artists who are people of color. And it's mm-hmm. like, they all have distilled the symbolic meaning so that white people can understand as simply yeah. as possible. And it seems... Sometimes didactic, but then when you're starting out, you're like, okay, I got to find yeah, find my your thing. language. I that, need to find yeah. that stick, that symbol that white people yeah. get. Yeah, you know, and yeah, it's, I think that's made very apparent very quickly. Yeah, but it's like, and and I do feel like like I think there's a time and a place for that sometimes, but I'm also like, at the end of the day, I'm actually just making fun of everybody. Yeah. So like, jokes on you if you you know the the paradise image, people like white collectors have bought. What do they, would they buy the, the photographs? The photographs. Oh, so the weird. one with the machete. It's weird to and imagine like, them hanging in so there. so <laughs> funny. I'm going to hang this over my fireplace. Yeah. And I'm not making fun of them at all. Like, I'm not saying like, oh, like, yeah. it's ridiculous. that you. I'm like, hang it over your fireplace. Have yeah. the conversation about it. Like, it is not like... Does show it bother depict- you that, that you're in the, are you, you're in the photograph and they're just watching you over the fireplace? <laughs> it, like, doesn't. it doesn't. I don't know why it doesn't. <laughs> you know, for a second I was like, oh, I'm so gross. Why would I do But then I'm like, this is a part of the story. Yeah. And this yeah. is maybe that it like doesn't actually feel like a portrait or a self portrait. Yeah, like, that's where the distance the war- happens. Yeah. The yeah. distance is really important for me to yeah. not feel like I'm like, 
I'm not, you know, I think, and my closest friends, I think they know that I'm, I'm like super funny and weird and whatever, but I don't think they would ever see it as the portrait of Jova. Yeah. And I, I don't know what a portrait for myself would look like actually now that I say that out loud. Maybe that'd be a good, good project. Yeah, scary. <laughs> oh, that'd be, that'd be interesting. Maybe I need to do that. Yeah. I think sometimes I, as like much as the work is about me, and this is what we were just talking about, it's like I've shrouded it in all these other things. Yeah. Get, get your get your sister to, to embody you. Yeah. She knows you the best. I should. Perform as That's Jova. really good. We actually made a performance video together that was so funny. It was like the, the first performance video I did was for a show that she actually had, and she asked me to do a piece with her. And we were talking about skin bleaching in Jamaica and I'm lighter skin and she's darker skin. And it was a weird video. It was like, so like we were like baking cakes, but like, cause they cut, um, you could like call it like cake face or whatever. Yeah. And we were doing this thing and I think, I think that's actually a really good suggestion. Maybe I'll do it. Thank you. No, you okay, can have it. it. I'm going to have it. I'm always it. Giving, I'm out, like, hey, giving out whatever thanks, pops Elon. in my head. Yeah. This is a thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. But it's, you know, it's, the work is so personal. There actually, there are a few pieces where it's definitely me. Like I think the, in the Aki piece, the grief piece is me, like tenderheaded. There's a few, a few things, but I think maybe I need, maybe that's for my next like residency or something. Or my yeah. next. I don't know if my characters are me. So you think out. even so, even if they're about your family and your well, because well, it, it's me when I it's me because I I write the script and narrate it and that sense is my voice, but I still mm-hmm. haven't figured out if when I'm in the film what that figure is like when your body is yeah. in it or just yeah. your voice, my body, your body. The vo- the, I would definitely say the yeah. voice is mine, but then yeah. the body is. Sometimes I feel like it's a stand-in, but I don't know. Yeah, I stand-in for what? I don't know, but That's it's me, but it's not. And so, so would you say you're? Are you, is it like an avatar or an alter ego? Because I never feel like I'm embodying anything. Mm. And I kind of, I like, I think because I don't answer it, the body also in the film also, it doesn't have an answer. And I think I like that ambiguity, you know, because sort of like if your intention isn't clear, it won't be clear to the audience. And yeah. because my intention of what that body is, yeah. is uncertain. Then it's also, it's also uncertain. Like an acceptable thing. Because I was, because I, I think I don't know what is my <laughs> body. Yeah. What, is, what is that? What does it mean? Or? But is that a part of why you make the work too? It's to tr- do you think it's a part of you trying to figure that out? I think so. Yeah. Like, so it's like it's like we were talking about with like portraits. It's not quite a portrait, but not, I wish there was like a word for it because I yeah. know what you're saying. It's yeah. like it's like a party, but not, and it's like not an alter ego, not it's like my avatar. movements. It's, it's my like, it's the awkwardness as yeah. I'm walking around or just trying to. Yeah. What is it like to be in my body in this space? Yeah. You know, someone here suggested I go to clown school. And Ooh. I'm like, Julie, it was like, oh, okay. you should go to clown school. And I was like, maybe it's not a bad idea. <laughs> like, she was telling me about a, a clowning program in LA that like helps you figure out or help has helped her as a person who works heavily with a character. Mm, um, maybe I should do that. Figure out, yeah, let's go to clown let's school to together. School, yeah, let's yeah. go to clown school. Yes. I would love that. I actually, like, I'm very serious about okay, it. Let's yeah. go to clown school. All right. And she was saying how, like, it helped her just figure out how she was embodying herself. <sighs> I like that idea. That was like, okay, that's, I like, I know how to embody paradise. I know how to embody the tourists and yeah. the travel agent and, like, have all these objects that I make about other people, but, like, 
Where we'll am both I? get our MacArthur Genius Award and spend all the money going to clown school. Let's do it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love this. This is so nice. Wow. I'm like, do I have any other questions for you, Zilan? No, I can ask away. What do you feel is the biggest lesson you've learned in your own practice in the last year? Ooh. <clears throat> That's a big question. Sorry. I think I, I well, I think the the thing that I think a lot about is this podcast mm-hmm. because I think I said that I didn't realize this until someone asked me, and I realized it's freed me from saying a specific message in my work. Mm-hmm. It's allowed me to be like less didactic and more abstract, and not worry about the meaning because I am being so explicit in what my messages are in this podcast, mm-hmm. and it frames my work yeah yeah and I think that's I think one of the things I learned yeah I mean I think I I think and also in grad school like think about the academy is it like really ruins didactic work yeah it's like don't be didactic yeah don't be but I also I'm like is this because y'all are all white and don't understand what it what are like <laughs> I remember when I made that Good Grief video, everybody was like, this is about slavery. And I was like, I don't know how you got slavery from this at all. Like, it is the opposite of. Well, they're like, no, but they're like, don't be didactic about like anything that's not formal. Anything right? that's because not formal. Because like, or- you have like Joseph Kasuth doing like the fucking chairs, mm-hmm. chairs, chair. And like, mm-hmm. I don't, that's like the epitome of didactism. Yeah. Yeah. But then it's also like anything that's formal and anything that's like. Where you're not making an overt political statement. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's like, like, I think they were looking for an overt political statement. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, and then they were like, well, you're not giving us that. So then you need to abstract it yeah. a lot. And I'm like, you know, emotions inherently are abstract. Like, life experiences are fucking abstract. Yeah. Like, whether or not I'm making a political statement shouldn't mean that my work isn't meaningful yeah. like and I, I think that's another thing artists of color like it's just like everything is like, or I just saw the show by Hans Hock which is like yeah at the new museum and it was like that's didactic I don't know go to a museum and have a voting booth I don't know <laughs> like <laughs> but the academics eat that shit up and it's, and so it's okay for them Because it's so safe and you don't actually have to think about it. But then it's weird how the academy like conditions you not to. I know. It's like this, like, it's such a like clusterfuck of like contradictions. I know. Just like actual contradictions. And when I think about, sometimes I think about, okay, this is how old am I going to be by the time I feel like I'm going to really be successful? (laughs) And like, do I need to say like, where, like, this is like paradise this is like not as an illusion just make a banner and put it on a billboard will that be the thing that like yeah. sets me up yeah but then it's like i don't know i think in, in many ways grad school i've had to do so much unlearning from grad I like learning but also so much unlearning yeah since i i left that place and i think i feel really grateful to be here to be in like a non academic set i love residencies first of all like i get me, so me, much me work too. done and yeah. like way more work done than like I do like my studio is amazing and I will work hard but like procrastination is real yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when I'm on residencies I like get to be around such creative people and like do all these things and push myself and like try new styles or new techniques and like really sit with things and I think being here it's like so nice because it's like not all of us were trained in an institution yeah like not all of us have this like formal like non-formal tension and just like 
not to say like I learned from people who weren't trained in this way, but like having the diversity that actually reflects our world feels important because I feel like it's always like, oh, where'd you go to school? Where'd you go to school? Yeah. What did you do? And then Yale. <laughs> when this guy again. Yale. God. Ah! I haven't applied to Skohegan and part of me is like, don't do it, Joe. Yeah. Well, I, I told myself. Did you I'm, go? No, I haven't. Uh-huh. But I told myself I'm not going to apply while I'm in China. I think this is like the last residency I'm doing while I'm in Asia. Because I'm like, there's all these residencies in Asia that I have access to. Yeah. You should do them. So, yeah. Are you, you said you were going to be there two years? I can't remember. Yeah, two years. I haven't been to Asia at all. I would like to. Am I like... If you get a visa to go to China, you can stay with me for free. So wait, do you have Chinese citizenship? No, no, no. I'm American. Okay. Actually, you can't hold dual citizenships as a Chinese person. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Jesus. I don't know what. I mean, I think the politics of citizenship are so interesting. I had no idea you couldn't do Chinese and like dual citizenship. Yeah, you can't. That's so... Is what other? I'm just like there's. I know there are other countries where you can't, but like Japan, you can't. I think. Um, I mean, I think I'm also not. a lot of people say like you just do the ones that you can't. You just don't tell them. Yeah. Because they don't have. I don't think they really have the government share database of who's a citizen. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's another way to work the system. Uh, like, yeah. can I make a citizenship program for Paradise? Oh yeah. That's actually a thought. I don't know. My parents always tell me this one story about how when I was a kid they took me to Jamaica and they stopped them and searched them for like five hours because they thought they were drug dealers. Because they had a Jamaican and a Colombian passport. Mm-hmm. And it's just like yeah. I think about that and I'm like, you know not you know, that the, that would happen to me as much now, but I'm like Yeah. It might be like I don't know, it's scary it's a scary Time and place to think about citizenship and what that all means. Especially as everyone's cracking down in nationalism. And and, and you heard about that, the whatever happened today with Trump or the the Supreme Court passing that legislation that anybody who is deemed as possibly needing government resources, having a harder time applying for citizenship or visas. And I'm just like... That that is definitely going to disproportionately affect anybody who is from a non-white country, and it's you know I'm not I don't I feel worried because I'm like I'm not ready for that the work to go into that direction yet, but I feel like eventually it's going to have to because it's like it's actually an issue of climate, it's an issue of citizenship, Mm -hmm. and like these utopian places that like won't exist. It's just like you've killed it. Not ready quite yet, but I think eventually like. Because I, I also think about how my career has been defined by these two bodies of work. And at some point, it just has to be, I just have made things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I can't. My, like, organizational person is just, like, trying to hold on to that. Yeah. And I feel myself just letting go. And I know it's good, but growing pains are also hard. It's hard, yeah. Artists... It's hard being an artist, you all. <laughs> I know. You tell me about it. I know. It's just like, oh. I know. How do we live? How do we change the world? How, it's like, mm-hmm. do we even have to change the world? Do we just tell stories? Or do we like, I'm, sometimes I'm like, am I seeking empathy? But for what? Not know. really. Like, I think we just want to be loved. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe appreciate it a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Seen in a way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I feel like I have like such strong friendships in the art world where I'm like, people really seem like I feel seen. But then again, it goes back to that question of success. Like, yeah. I feel seen by my peers. Like, 
I want like I want to find joy and fulfillment in that. And I think I do. I also think the reality of capitalism is like making it so I st- I'm still seeking well, also, more and more. Well, and also more. like it's weird because like we are seen by our friends and peers, but we know even when we reach success, if we were to reach monetary or critical success, we will not be seen by the buyers or the critics. It's rough. So it's rough. And I will say I do appreciate like Detroit has a lot of folks who I think are like critics and critics of color who are introducing me to other, I don't know. I just think in our like a cocoon of colorful, like artists of colorhood. Yeah. There's like so much that we gain from each other. Yeah. I just say like, I really, you know, my dream has always been, or one of my actual, one of my dreams has always been to have a, artist residency for people of color. Yeah. And I'm working on a project right now where it's an artist residency. We got funding for, it's called bulk space artist residency and it's in Detroit bulk. So like the idea that artists are going to take up space in bulk and it's for marginalized artists. So that includes like artists of color, gender nonconforming, marginalized, like whatever artists. And so I'm getting close to that dream and we just got, funding so that our first year the residents will be fully funded awesome and get tiny stipends yeah (laughs) and then we have a former church slash synagogue where artists can present work so i think after this first so we have the residency program for local artists and then a visiting artist program where we invite artists to pitch like different site-specific installations or projects that they want to do with us so i'm saying that now so that one day (laughs) People maybe will listen to this podcast and think about applying because I think it's actually really amazing. Well, you let me know and then I can always plug it. Yes, please plug it. Yeah. But also, you should apply. I'm like, come to Detroit. Oh, yeah, like, I would love when to. When you're like done, I with- applied to the 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 uh, Red Bull one, but I didn't get it. Yeah, Red Bull is. Yeah. Uh, no. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. We. Yes, come to Detroit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good note to end. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to plug? Do you want to give information about your show? Or maybe it's too early? Too early. Okay. All right. Too All right. Early, but I've loved this. Thank you so much for doing oh, this. Thanks for talking. It's amazing. Really? I'm like, I'm, oh my God, I'm like, ooh, now I'm like ready to go think about happy things. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad I, I could good. help you there. I feel good. Thank you, Zivon. Thanks and so thank much. Thank you all for listening. I've always wanted to say that. You want to try it again? Do it. Do it. Okay. Thank you all for listening. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, Thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.